Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's interesting when you're reading the scriptures and the projector tells you to clean the lens filter. It's like metaphorical on a whole lot of levels, if you think about it. Um, you know, I came to faith uh, when I was about 15. And my first five years of Christianity were just kind of awesome. Like they were awe. I just, there was so much about them and, and so much about like studying God's word and getting in and getting into community. It, it was a joy. And when I turned about 20, I hit this place where I started to have a whole lot of questions. And maybe you've been there before where you follow Jesus for a while and then you get to this place and you have some questions and they're not easy questions. And some of these questions are deep internal struggle. They're, they're lingering questions, they're nagging questions. And the question that, that I hit at the age of 20, or that hit me, was, it, was, it was a simple question, but it was, it was a challenging question to find the answer to. And the question was this, does God get angry at us when we sin? And in particular, does God get angry at me when I sin? It was a very personal question. And I wasn't asking this question because I had some sin that I wanted to jump into and wanted to know, will he get mad or not? It was, it was more because my soul was in a state of turmoil. Um, you know, I, I was a Christian. I believe Jesus, uh, his death on the cross, like applied to my life, but I also knew my sin. And, you know, I've come to learn this now, but back Back then, I didn't really understand that some people have excusing consciences and other people have accusing consciences. And I've always been one of these people with an accusing conscience. Uh, Psalm 51.3, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. That was a verse that marked so much of my life in that stage. Like, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I don't ever remember struggling to believe that I was a sinner. That was never a big struggle for me. Um, I, I just so I was sitting there wondering, like, does God get angry at us when we sin? <clears throat> and if He does, my conclusion was He has to be angry with me all the time. Like I'm selfish, self-centered, I'm prideful, I'm greedy, I'm lustful, I'm lazy, I'm envious, I'm jealous, and that's all before breakfast, right? And so, if God gets angry when we sin. He has to be angry with me all the time. And sooner or later, his patience is going to wear thin. I'm sure some of you have asked that question or questions similar. Maybe you've never asked that question. But have you ever felt insecure in your faith? This is what it's getting to. Have you ever asked these questions? How does what I do interact with my position with God? Does, does God... Does my standing with God change on the basis of my behavior? If so, you feel the sense of inadequacy. Well, what if I'm not doing enough? What if I'm not being good enough? Eugene Peterson, he's a pastor. He's one of my favorite authors. Uh, I came across this quote from him this week, and it, it resonated very deeply with me. He said, in the past, the Christian church has more often had to deal with the Pharisee, the person who feels he achieved adequacy long ago. People today are much more apt to be uneasy and fearful about their Christian identity. People don't feel they are very good at the Christian life. They are apologetic and defensive about their faith. When I read that, it resonated with me as a pastor. 
Because as a pastor, when I meet people outside of the church and they find out I'm a pastor, conversations only go like one of three or four ways. But one of the ways it goes to is a critique of the church. And one of the thing I hear, things I hear is, you know, the church is filled with a bunch of self-righteous people. It's filled with a bunch of Pharisees. And, and I would say as a pastor, there's, there's some truth to that. I experience some of that in our midst. But more often than not, I don't see people who are super self-righteous. More often than not, I see people who feel this deep sense of inadequacy and insecurity in their faith. People, as, as Peterson put it, people who don't feel like they're very good at the Christian life, people who are struggling with fears and doubts and questions like, does God really love me? Not does God love us, does God love me? Questions like, will this sin get the best of me? Will this just continue on forever? Will I ever be free from it? Questions like, can I really have peace with God? Can I really know God and experience him in my life? This resonates with you at any level. I want to tell you the text that we're looking at today can absolutely change your life. What this text teaches, the doctrine it holds for us, is a doctrine called the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it's a truth that, that I really came to understand in my 20s, early 20s, and it radically changed my life. And it's one of the reasons I became a pastor. So I, kind of said, I said, I think all I want to do with my life is just get up in front of people and tell them this truth over and over and over again. And I'll use different stories and illustrations, but I just want to say it over and over again. Because it has the power to change your life. It has the power to bring comfort to your fears, security to the sense of inadequacy you feel. John Calvin calls this doctrine the hinge of Christianity. Luther, another reformer, said that this doctrine is the doctrine which, with which the church either rises or falls. You get it right, the church is going to rise. You get it wrong, the church is going to collapse. And the doctrine, it's familiar, but it's not really well understood. But it's staggering. I mean, the claim that Paul's making here, it's staggering, but it's also counterintuitive. It's not something you would think up on your own. And because it's so staggering, yet also so counterintuitive, mix in with that, that so many of us have been raised in a Christian culture where we hear words like justification and faith, but we don't always know what they mean. What I want to do this morning is just walk through this text and show you what it says. And then we're going to wrap it up by, by three applications that Paul actually gives us right here in the text. And so we're going to spend most of our time in Romans 4 and 5. But before we do, we have to do a little bit of background because I'll be honest, the book of Romans, it's an amazing book, but it's a hard book. It's a challenging book. If you've ever actually tried to read Romans, you know what I'm talking about. It's over 7,000 words long in, in English. Uh, it's very dense. It's filled with a whole lot of big words. Paul uh, he goes on tangents an awful lot. At least it seems like it. He's talking about one thing and then all of a sudden he's over here. But then he comes back to the argument that he was making. And so it's really, really challenging, especially if your only experience with Romans is just picking it up and maybe reading a couple of verses. The challenge with that is Paul, there's a flow to what he's writing. It's just kind of complicated to follow the flow. It's really easy to miss the forest for the trees. And the flow... What Paul is doing in Romans is particularly in the first four chapters, he's building an argument. He's building a case. 
And so he gives this introduction, you know, verses one through about 15, 16 and 17 are kind of in there. And then he immediately gets into building the case, building his argument. And at the heart of the argument, Paul's talking about this issue of righteousness. Now, righteousness is not a word we use, but it's a concept that drives our lives. To be righteous in the Bible is to be accepted, it's to be approved, it's to pass the test, it's to be the way you ought to be. And what Paul's arguing in Romans, he's saying that the problem we have is that God is righteous, but we are unrighteous. God is the way he should be. We are not the way we should be. And so how do we, who are unrighteous, become righteous before God? How, how can we be justified? And that word justify, in this language, in the Greek language, is real close to the word righteousness. And what it means is to declare righteous, to make righteous, to be righteous, to become righteous. It's a verb. How can we be justified before God? And so Paul's building this case, and evidently, he's, this is a letter to a church, there are people in the church who are saying, we are justified, and it might not be quite this simple, but essentially what they're saying, we are justified, we're going to get the approval and the acceptance, we know we're going to pass the test when we come before God, because we obey God's rules. We obey the law. This is a very deeply ingrained belief in that church, it's very deeply ingrained belief in the American church and so many quarters. If I obey the law, I do what God says I'm supposed to do, he's going to let me in. And so what Paul does for really two full chapters is he basically says, you are out of your mind if you think that's going to work. You're crazy. If you believe that, you have no idea how deep the problem of sin is in your life. And so when you're reading it, it's kind of intense. If you read Romans 2 and Romans 3, it's kind of intense. I mean, Paul, like he, he lays out an awful lot. One of the things he does in Romans 3 is he lays out this blistering attack on all of humanity. He compiles like the best of the worst verses or the best of the verses about how bad we are in the Old Testament, and he puts them together so we can all see them. Starting in verse 10, he says, listen, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are in open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, if you just open the Bible and you're like, hey, I want some inspiration. And you turn there. It's going to seem like Paul is very, he's a very angry man and he doesn't like people. Like he's a raging introvert. But if you keep it in context, you understand, no, no, Paul, he's making a case. Paul isn't saying, hey, how can I make people feel worse and worse? What he's trying to do is he's trying to get to people, speak to people who say, you know what? I'm going to be accepted, righteous before God by my, my performance, by my obedience, by what I do. And he's saying, no, 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 don't you read? Like, there's no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who does good. That's not going to get you in. 
And then he spells it out very clearly, two verses after that section. In verse 20, Paul puts it very plainly. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous, justified in his, that's God, in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You living a very good life is never going to put you in a right relationship with God. God is never going to say, you know what, you pass when he looks at your behavior. And what Paul really says here, which is kind of mind-blowing when you begin to understand this, he says the law that God gave, like the law, what it can really do in our lives is it can expose how we don't obey it. Like he gave us the law and we cannot obey it. It's kind of discouraging. So we're not going to be righteous by what, by what we do. So, so how can we be righteous? But now, verse 21, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, so in a different realm, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. What Paul is saying here is there is this righteousness that God can give us that we don't get on the basis of what we do. It's not something intrinsic to us. It's something outside of us that God brings into our life. And he tells us in the very next verse, this righteousness, this gift of righteousness, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is the way you're declared righteous in God's sight is by faith. And then to spell it out really clearly, in verse 28 of chapter 3, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. We maintain that one is justified, that one gets the approval of God apart from what they do. Now, this, this was controversial in that day, and it's controversial in our day. Like Paul is writing to people, and this is a bit reductionistic, but they were people who spent their entire lives believing that if they obey the laws well enough, they faithfully obey the Ten Commandments, all the food laws, the cleanliness laws, the calendar laws, that they can secure or maintain their right standing with God. And so they built their whole lives around this. Like, I want God's approval. I want his acceptance. And so here's all of the stuff that I'm going to do to earn it and maintain it. And Paul comes in and he says, that's not going to work for you. That doesn't work for anyone. And where this really hits home, if you were raised in this kind of American version of Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, like I was, I was raised, I was taught, you know, the way you go to heaven is you'd be good. Good people go to heaven when they die. Bad people go to hell. I know I'm not alone. I mean, that was, that was one of the controlling narratives of religion in my childhood. And it came out of the church, but it didn't come out of the Bible. Like, I don't know where it came out of. I don't know, know its origins, but it's not here. Because what Paul is saying here is no way. There is no way you're ever going to get God's approval because you're a good person. Your sin's too deep. The problem's too deep. No one will be declared righteous. Now, that's, that's negative in a sense, but, but, it's, but it's highly encouraging because he says, but you can be declared righteous, you can be justified by faith. 
All you gotta do is believe, he's saying. Trust. And to show that this idea of being justified by faith alone is not something new, but something very old, because Paul's writing to a lot of people who are Jewish, he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and he says, listen, this isn't, this isn't something I'm coming up with. This is how God has been interacting with people, you know, all the way back to Genesis, back to Abraham. If you're not familiar with the book of Abraham, in Genesis 12, God comes to this man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The problem was Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they, they were unable to have children. And so God gave this promise, but they couldn't have kids. And so Abraham was struggling. How am I going to father a great nation if we can't have children? And in Genesis 15, God comes and he speaks to Abraham and he says, Abraham, go outside and try to count the stars. It's like, that's, that's how many offspring you're going to have. And in response to this word to Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, which Paul quotes here in Romans 4, 3, we're told, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and the belief here, it's not like he just had this unwavering faith, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but he believed, he, he had open hands to receive the promise, and he said, I believe what you're saying, I trust you, and God credited it as righteousness. Now, that word credited is extremely important in a fi financial context. It means to put money in someone else's accounts, in someone else's account, and so you can be credited something because you've earned it as a wage, or you can be credited something as a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Someone just came along and they said, you know what? I want to bless them. What's their bank account number? Boom, I'm just going to throw some money in there. And to clear up any confusion about why Abraham was credited this righteousness, Paul says in the very next verse, Romans 4, 4, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as, as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. What Paul is saying here, to put it very clearly, Abraham was not credited this righteousness because he earned it. It doesn't say Abraham obeyed God, Abraham worked for God, Abraham did acts of love for God, Abraham memorized scripture. It doesn't say any of that. It says Abraham believed God he trusted God who justifies the wicked, and God said, that's enough. <laughs> you trust me? Boom, I am going to gift you righteousness. And then Paul, he goes on a bit of a tangent, and then in 23 of the same chapter, he argues, he comes back to this point, and he argues that the way God worked in Abraham's life is how he works in our lives as well. He says, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, Abraham, he was like a foreshadow, he was a prototype of sorts to show us how we experience Justification, how we're made right, we're declared right before God. And he says, when you trust Jesus died for your sins, 
and was raised for your justification, when you say, open hands, I want to receive this, I want to believe this, God credits it as righteousness to you. Not because of anything you've done, not because all of a sudden you're a great person, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Now, big picture, what this means is that at the moment of faith, and faith alone, the judge of the universe, who spoke all of reality into existence, who upholds the world and your life by the word of his power, the judge who is coming back one day to bring judgment on the living and the dead, the judge of the universe, the minute you have faith, we're told you're credited righteousness, which means he doesn't look on you and offer condemnation. He looks on you and he says, you're approved. You're accepted. You pass the test. You are as you ought to be. Does this sound too good to be true to anyone else? Like all I gotta do is believe that Jesus died and was raised for me, yes. And then you're, I'm, I'm declared righteous in God's sight. Yes, that's it, that's it. Anyone else? Like, it's staggering, but I didn't come up with it. It's right here. Like, I just showed it to you. I, I wouldn't be able to come up with something like this. It's challenging. It's kind of hard to follow the logic at times. But this is what God's Word says. And the depth that you understand this truth is the depth of which your life you will experience joy and hope and peace in your life. But here's where things get tricky. In justifying us, God doesn't make us righteous. God declares us righteous. In justifying us, God doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. What I mean is, it's not as if God waves a wand at the moment of faith, and all of a sudden we are sinless, morally perfect human beings. I mean, Abraham, again, he's a great example for this. Abraham was sinful before Genesis 15, which we see, you can go back and read. And then you know what happens in Genesis 16, right after this passage? After God makes this great promise and declaration? I'll give you a hint. Abraham doesn't become this man who lives this beautiful life with, with no sin and only good works. No, what he does is he, he lacks faith. He tries to short circuit God's plan and he sleeps with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. Even though he was declared righteous, he was still very much a sinner. And even though we are declared righteous in Christ, we are still very much sinners. And this, this is what you could call the existential struggle of the Christian life. This is what Martin Luther, he, he helped me understand this so much. He said, Christians at the same time are totally righteous and totally sinful. We're not a little bit righteous and a little bit sinful. We're totally righteous and we're simultaneously totally sinful. And because of that, there's this dissonance that occurs in our soul. Because of that, we, we struggle to say, well, can what God says be true? Because I can look in the mirror and I can look at my weak and there's no way I'm righteous. Like I don't, <laughs> I have not merited his favor this week. So how in the world can he say, no, no, you're righteous and I accept you. Luther 
he names the struggle well. He says the words freedom from the wrath of God, from the law, sin, death, etc. They are easy to say, but to feel the greatness of the freedom and to apply its result to oneself and the agony of conscience and in practice, this is more difficult than anyone can say. Like translation, saying the struggle is real. This is hard. It's really hard to trust that God, God sees us as righteous even when we're not righteous. And Luther, he not only names the struggle, he actually helps us with the struggle. Uh, one of the first things that he wrote after he, he uncovered this doctrine of justification by faith alone, he wrote a work entitled The Freedom of a Christian, and he actually dedicated it to the Pope. And if you know anything of church history, he and the Pope weren't on the best of terms at that moment. Uh, the Pope wanted to kill him, but he couldn't kill him or else the people would rise up. And so Luther, he writes it. And I think it was a little bit, you know, uh, Luther was being a bit provocative, but I also think Luther wanted to see the Pope come to a saving faith in Jesus. I think Luther wanted to save the man. And so he writes this work, and in, in the work, he tells the story. It's the story of a good, righteous, wealthy king who, for reasons only known to him, falls in love with a poor, sinful, miserable prostitute, and he asks her to marry him. And for the prostitute, the good, righteous king, wants to, it sounds too good to be true. But she takes him at his word and she says, okay. And so she comes to the wedding and he shows up. And at their wedding, Luther says, this beautiful exchange takes place. At the wedding, the king, the minute they say I do, the king absorbs all of her debts, all the, all the baggage she's bringing in to the marriage. He suffers the shame that comes with marrying a prostitute, the jokes, the snickering, disbelief from some, the mockery. But she, the prostitute, on the other hand, what she receives, she receives all the love, the privilege, and the wealth that comes with royalty. Even though she's not royal, she doesn't have royal blood. And even though she's not very queenly, because she was a prostitute two weeks before this wedding. She's not very queenly. She, she fumbles in her royal gown. She lacks proper table manners. She doesn't uh, understand etiquette. She's kind of rude. And what Luther says, but it doesn't matter. She's still the queen. And some would say, well, no, she's a prostitute at heart. No, she's a queen. And her being a queen trumps everything else. Why? Because the king loved her. What Luther says is that this is a perfect picture of Christ and his church. That we, we are the prostitute. We are sinners and failures. And Christ is the king who comes down. He absorbs the cost of our sin and shame. And when we put our faith in him, when we are united to him, we get his name, his riches, and his righteousness. And it doesn't matter how we behave, in that moment, it doesn't matter if we burp at the table, you know, it doesn't matter if we don't understand all of the right manners. In time, we'll learn to grow into our new identity, but, but our status, it's not contingent upon our behavior. It's a legal declaration. You're married, husband and wife, you're now the queen. 
and the rest of our lives as Christians, just like the rest of the, that prostitute's life, is spent learning to live into this new identity. All right, how do we actually step into this? And Paul, he helps us. Because in chapter 5, he summarizes the first four verses of Romans, and he actually gives us application. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, in light of everything I've just said, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Three things. Three things I want to put before you that Paul puts before us that help us live into this new identity. Number one, you have to recognize you have peace with God, the very first thing Paul says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's important to note, Paul doesn't say we have the peace of God. Sometimes Paul talks about the peace of God. Peace of God is a subjective thing, I think. It's a feeling, a wonderful feeling, a calm. It's an inner tranquility that God can bring into your heart. And that is not what he's talking about here. He says we don't, he's not talking about the peace of God. He's talking about peace with God. It's not subjective, it's objective. It's not an inner tranquility. It's the end of hostility. That Paul is saying when you're justified by faith, when God declares you righteous, he means it. When he says, I accept you, he means it. And you have peace with him. And the hostilities are gone. Even if you still have sin in your life, God's wrath and his love no longer burn against you, they burn for you. He's no longer at odds with you. He's no longer looking down on you. He's no longer condemning you. Paul will argue three chapters later, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have peace with God. Why? Because we have been justified, declared righteous by faith. And so what this means is, if you've put your faith in Christ, but you find yourself feeling condemned, that feeling isn't from God. If you have put your faith in Jesus and you feel condemned, that's not coming from him. It could be coming from your heart. It could be coming from Satan. It's not coming from God. I want to be clear. There's a, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. It's kind of hard to describe. It's one of those things you know it when you feel it. Conviction is the feeling that you need to deal with something in your life. It's a sense, I need to go make this right. It's a sense that I have to address this. Condemnation, on the other hand, is the feeling that you're worthless, that you're never going to measure up, that your life's kind of hopeless, maybe totally hopeless, and you're a miserable person. When conviction comes, what we do is we need to confess, repent, and then we move forward. God keeps very short accounts with us. By the time we're done confessing our sin, he's forgotten it. When condemnation comes, this is one of the ways you can tell it's coming to your life. You confess a sin, and then you confess it again, and then you confess it again, and then you confess it again, which logically doesn't make any sense. But experientially, you're thinking, well, this thing's, this thing's surely, it's going to damn me. So forgive me, 
please forgive me, pretty please forgive me. And what Paul's saying here, you're already forgiven. You already have peace. And so if you can't receive that peace, if you feel condemned, you know, confessing sin doesn't help, you got to do something. And in 1 John 3.20, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because John says, listen, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He says, what do you do when you feel condemned? Whenever our hearts condemn us, remember, God is greater than our hearts. John says, what you do is when your heart starts to condemn you, you go over its head, in essence. All right, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to God. And I'm going to go to his word. And when I open his word, it says I'm not condemned. So I'm not condemned. When I go to his word, it says I have peace. And so I'm going to embrace that peace. One of the marks of the Christian life should be an understanding that we have peace with God. There's no hostility anymore. We're not at war. Number two, that's, that's the beginning. And number two is kind of, it's attached to it, but it, it goes beyond that. Because Paul says, after he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he then says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And I think what Paul's arguing here is we have gained access into a life of grace, a realm of grace. Here's what I mean. When you and I hear the word justification, we almost always think of it in terms of pardon and forgiveness. When we think, what did Jesus do on the cross? He died, what? To forgive us of our sins. We're almost always just in that realm of forgiveness. Forgiveness, while it's true, and that's a part of justification, it's not all of it. Forgiveness says, you may go. You're no longer liable to punishment or penalty. You have peace. Justification says, you may come. Much as you may go, says, you may come. You have access into God's presence, into this realm of grace. You know, one of the things that the, the commentators point out with this verse is it's, it's a unique way that Paul talks about grace. Normally, grace is talked about as an attribute of God. Here, though, it, it's almost depicted as, like, into this grace in which we now stand, it's almost depicted as this realm, this region that we now live in. And if you remember, last week we talked, the, the medieval church talked about grace like it was a substance that God would dole out to you. And the reformers said, no, 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 it's, it's God's countenance. It's his delight and his smile and his joy. And I think what Paul's saying here is that, that we now live in this realm. We have access to this realm and we live there by faith where God smiles over us. Where he delights over us because of what Jesus has done for us. What this means Gosh, it means an awful lot of things. Some of you, you were raised in churches that stressed more the negatives of the faith than the positive. The emphasis in those churches, maybe it was families, maybe it was homes, but the major emphasis in those churches was our sin and how bad we are rather than the grace God has shown us in Christ. There's an awful lot of churches like that. There's an awful lot of American Christianity that's like that. I don't know why. I mean, it doesn't make sense. What would you rather talk about? 
our sin and how miserable we are, or even or, or, or God's grace and how it transcends our sin? Which would you rather focus on? Well, when we look at the church, it sure seems like oftentimes we want to focus on our sin. And I just want to say, if you were raised in that place where the emphasis was all negative, no positive, where the emphasis was all sin and all law, and in your formative years, that's where you began to learn about God and understand God, what that means is you learned at a very early age to associate the idea of God with feelings of guilt and shame. And I want to say, if that's you, I'm sorry. Like the Christian's life is not a life that is dominated, should not be a life. God does not desire that it would be a life that's dominated by guilt and shame or fear, but rather hope and joy and peace. Another thing this means that we live in this, we have access to this realm of grace. It means that, that the pressure is off. And what I mean when I say that, I'm not saying we don't strive after holiness or that, that it doesn't matter how we live. What I'm saying is we don't have to live and die with every failure in our life. We're not saved by our works and our relationship with God is not maintained by our works. It's maintained by Christ and his spirit. He takes joy in us. So we have peace, we have access, we live under the smile. And number three, Paul says, we get to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And what Paul is saying here is that not only do we not have to dread the day of judgment, we can actually celebrate it. When Jesus comes back to right every wrong, you know, Revelation says there are going to be people crying out for mountains to fall on them so they don't face the wrath of God, Paul says we can rejoice in that day because that wrath's not coming for us. And furthermore, after the judgment's done, he's going to make everything new. And so we, we can look forward, like, what would this earth, this earth's amazing as it is, but what would it be like if it wasn't for us and our sin? Well, we're going to find out. What would we be like if it wasn't for our sin? And Paul's saying, we as believers, we rejoice and hope of that day. We look forward to it. And we say, that's going to be amazing. And that hope shapes our life. This means we don't have to fear judgment. And it means we don't have to fear death. And there are some people who will ask, well, how do I know, how do I know that my faith is strong enough? Because I think what Paul's saying here. So he's saying you can have assurance that when you die, you can have a reasonable amount of assurance that when you die, you are going to be with the Lord. And people say, well, but how do I know my faith is strong enough? And the answer to that is it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Like for the reformers, faith, the picture they give of faith is open hands. Like this is faith. I'll take it. God, you said it, I'll take it. One last thing before we close. I know some of you, I can see it, you're twitching a little bit because there's something about the human heart that when we hear this stuff, we always want to say, yeah, but what about works? Yeah, are you saying our works don't matter? Yeah, what about, we're saved by faith alone, but it's a faith that's not alone. Even preachers, whenever they preach on this, they always feel the need at the very end. Say, I need to make this really clear though, your works really, really do matter. And that's true. Your works really, really do matter. But what I sense that there's something in the human heart that we can hear this. We're saved by faith alone. 
not as a result of works. And then there's something about our heart, though, that it's like, but what about works? It's like an addiction for us. But what about works? I want to feel good about my, that, that's great, but what about what we do? And I would tell you this, that, that usually the people who are pounding the table, not always, usually the people who are pounding, but what about works? What about works? They're the people who don't lead the most beautiful of lives, right? They're the people who, and maybe that's what's going on. Uh, it's something for themselves. I'll also tell you this, that, that I don't feel the need to drive home every week how, how hard you have to work, because what I've seen and what I see over and over again is when people understand they have peace with God, when people understand they have access to a life of grace, when people rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, they live some of the most beautiful lives I've ever seen. Most beautiful lives I know, the people who give their lives away, they're not people who are, gosh, I gotta do a whole bunch of stuff to keep my relationship with God, right? They're people who are like, I'm loved and I'm safe, so I'm gonna pour it out. I was reading not too long ago in this book, the author was talking about this and someone said to him, or he posed the question, people say if we're saved by faith alone and not by works, uh, he said, the person asked, well, then why should we work if we're saved by faith through grace? Why should we work? And he responded and I loved it. He said, you know, that's an interesting question, but not a deep one. And then he went on and said, love understood properly, is never a reward for being good. Goodness, rather, is always a consequence of having been loved. We are not loved because we are good, but hopefully we become good as we experience love. As we come to the table, I don't know if there's a better introduction. As we remember what Paul says, Romans 4, that Christ was delivered over to death for our sins, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. So remember that we're safe, we're loved, we're secure. We come to this table. It reminds us that we're, we have peace, that we live under the smile, and it also reminds us of the hope we have that awaits us. So if you're a Christian, I encourage you to come and to celebrate, to take part, anticipate the day he returns. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who delivered himself over to death so you wouldn't have to justify yourself. Let me pray.